0: We'll get going. God, we are thankful for this time, uh, this hour we have together to open your word and to consider what you have revealed about yourself and particularly what you have revealed about your son. God, I pray that you would help us um, to be more gripped by not only the truthfulness but but also the glory of who Jesus is. I pray that uh, as you said, let light shine into darkness, that you would let light shine into our hearts, that we would be able to see the light of the glory of you in the face of Christ. God, we thank you for sending your Son uh, to become like us, to live perfectly for us, to die a sinner's death for us. Uh, to rise again from the dead for us, for our justification. And so we come to you um, as sons, so glad that you have made us such in him. So we come to you only because of what he has done, and we come to you asking your blessing on uh, the communication of your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, and one more time, last time I'll, I'll say it, for those of you who just uh, stepped in, there is another Sunday school class happening down the hall for adults. It is training in evangelism in the conference room. That will also be very profitable. Uh, the next few weeks in here, we will be doing a series on the person of Christ, or Christology. Uh, commonly... Uh, uh, the, the sub-discipline of, of theology. Uh, one of them is Christology. And under the heading of Christology, you can divide that into the person of Christ, uh, who he is, and the work of Christ, what he has done. So we're going to be f- focusing on the who of Jesus as opposed to the what he has done, the person of Christ. So who is Jesus. Uh, our answer, the thesis we'll slowly examine over the next three weeks, is this. Jesus is God the Son incarnate. God the Son incarnate. And that short sentence is, is perhaps the most foundational and the most profound truth of the Christian religion. Jesus is God the Son incarnate. And so our goal for the next three weeks is, is not just that you would become more convinced that, that that's true, but that your eyes would be opened more and more to see that this is, that this is glorious. So not just that you would be able to, to sign your name at the bottom of the Apostles' Creed and say, yeah, I believe that, but you would be able to say with Paul that I am willing to suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, For the sake of knowing Christ, of knowing Christ. So we're aiming it at greater, that is more, and sharper, that is more precise, knowledge of who Christ is. But that goal is is not the ultimate goal. It's a a penultimate goal. The ultimate goal is that uh, we would have greater and sharper knowledge so that we'll have greater devotion to him and awe of him. And enjoyment of him, of knowing him, of trusting him, of following him, of worshiping him. And that you would become more satisfied in knowing Christ. And thereby that Jesus would be more glorified in you. And I'm really excited to get to teach this uh, over a few weeks. These truths are really, really marvelous. I confess that uh, I approach teaching... This topic, with fear and trembling, uh, because of, of how incredible the Bible um, reveals who Jesus is. Uh, it, I feel like if someone asked me, um, if someone drove a nice car to church, and you ask me, Hey, can, Keith, can you take the class out and show them uh, this, this nice vehicle? I know virtually nothing about cars, right? So, with fear and trembling, I would walk up, and I would say... Uh, this is a nice car. It's got two seats in the front. You know, the one on the left is where the driver sits. Under the hood, there's uh, the big thing in the middle. That's the engine. If it's broken, the car doesn't run. And, and I, would, I would be communicating true things about the car, but, but things, although true, I would recognize that they were so far below the worth and dignity of that car. Likewise, to, to, to teach on the person of Christ, how can we say things, how can we think thoughts that are worthy of, of who Christ is, how glorious he is? Praise God, we have the Bible, right? It, it the true revelation of who Christ is. Um, these truths are marvelous, they really are. Um... So first things first, a little introduction uh, about the person of Christ generally, and and then we'll uh, talk about the first aspect of that, which is his deity. Uh, So first, what's at stake? When we consider the question of Jesus' identity, of the person of Christ, how costly are the chips we're dealing with, so to say? How, How significant is... The doctrine of the person of Christ. And I submit to you that the stakes could not be higher. That a proper understanding of Christ's person is essential for salvation. Life and death, heaven and hell hang in the balance. And and, and I'll show you that in a little bit, just as a side note. You were given two sheets of paper as you walked in. One is the actual outline that we're walking through; the other is uh, an, an appendix, so to say, biblical support for the deity of Christ. You can set that aside for now. We'll use that in a little bit. Okay. But uh, under the first point, or we're under subpoint B, what, what is the significance of the person of Christ, and it's essential for salvation. Now, I said earlier that uh, the person of Christ, the answer to who Jesus is was perhaps the most foundational and the most profound truth of Christianity. Now, if I had asked you before I said that, what's what's the most foundational and the most profound truth of Christianity? You maybe would have said, uh, well, that's the gospel. You would have been right. Uh, The gospel, though, as it is commonly understood, focuses not necessarily on Christ's person, but on Christ's work. But his person, his identity, is the foundation for that work. So uh, the gospel concerns the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? Uh, the gospel is not um, living, dying, and resurrecting those acts abstractly conceived. The certain life of a certain person. Jesus, the particular death of a particular person. Jesus, and the specific resurrection of a specific person. Jesus. What Jesus did only matters because of who Jesus is. His identity is essential to his accomplishments. You cannot separate uh, Christology, the person of Christ from soteriology, that is, how we are saved. They are, they are irrevocably intertwined. You cannot unentangle them. And the early church got this um, from the beginning, that who Christ is and how we're saved have everything to do with each other. So the, the first few councils of the church, post-New Testament, they all uh, asked questions about who Jesus is. They were primarily concerned with articulating faithfully the person, the identity of Christ, and guarding against errors uh, that that attacked his fundamental identity. And these councils that the early church, uh, and and we'll look at them, I hope, during these series, um, after they said that this is what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is, Then they formally declared, and everyone who doesn't believe this is a heretic. And that's a big deal. Sometimes we use the word heresy lightly. Technically, a heretic is someone who believes or teaches uh, a doctrine that's false. And it's so significant uh, of an error that it's actually damnable for believing it. Heretics. They said, this is who Jesus is. And anyone who has a different idea about the person of Christ is damned, is anathema, is cursed. Now, was that too harsh? Did they go too far in in labeling those who disagreed with them heretics? Not in this case. They understood, correctly understood, there is no salvation apart from a true understanding of, of who Jesus is. There is no salvation apart from a true understanding of not just what he did, but who he is. Uh, and the New Testament, I think, um, corroborates this point. Um, un- under subheading 3, or III, uh, the witness of the New Testament. I, I simply mean to show here that uh, the New Testament... Um, agrees with that conclusion that there's a close, uh, inseparable connection between Christology, the person of Christ, and soteriology, how we're saved. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name, that is no other person, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So there is no salvation outside of Jesus' name, uh, names represent one's person, one's identity, who one is. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that's a statement about his identity, about his person, and believe in your heart that God raised him from his dead, so there's a statement about his work, you will be saved. So, so Christology and soteriology are inseparably joined because the, the person of Christ is inseparably joined with the work of Christ. Um, in Acts 16, the Philippian jailer asks Paul, What must I do to be saved? And Paul responds, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So complete yourself in complete personal trust to the person of Jesus. Put your hope in Him. Uh, all He is and all He's done. And all he's taught. And all he will do. Um, there's a great Spurgeon quote. And uh, kudos to uh, David McGough for pointing this out to me. Um, he said this. He said, our faith is a person. The gospel that we have to preach is a person. And go wherever we may. We have something solid and tangible to preach. If you would ask the twelve apostles in their day, what do you believe in? They would not have needed to go round about with a long reply, but they would have pointed to their master. They would have said, we believe him. But what are your doctrines? There they stand, incarnate. But what is your practice? There stands our practice. He is our example. What then do you believe? Hear ye the glorious answer of the Apostle Paul. We preach Christ crucified. Our creed, our body of divinity, our whole theology is summed up in the person of Christ Jesus. The apostle preached doctrine, but the doctrine was Christ. He preached practice, but the practice was all in Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul said, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his coming, cunning, your thoughts would be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. How would that happen? Verse four: four, If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, then the one we proclaimed. right We know the beginning of uh, Galatians he says, "If someone comes to you an angel or anyone, or even if we come to you and proclaim a different gospel than the one we've preached, let him be accursed. Here he says, if someone comes and preaches to you a another Jesus, a different Jesus, a false understanding of his person, you put up with it readily enough. So just as a quick side note, uh, we won't focus here, but, but this is why we say uh, that groups like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses aren't actually Christians. Um, it, it can sound harsh, but, but if you get the person of Christ fundamentally wrong, We're not talking about some of the finer points of doctrine concerning the person of Christ. But the fundamental teachings about who Jesus is. You cannot get those wrong and be saved. It's essential for salvation. Uh, Finally, just to underscore the significance of of the doctrine of Christ's person. uh, Consider the focus of the Gospels. So the Gospels tell the story of Christ's work. They tell the story of of uh, his conception, birth, uh, baptism, ministry, his life, his, his death, his burial, his resurrection. But as they tell that story of his work, uh, I, I think it's um, able to be demonstrated that the main question they're answering concerns Jesus' identity. Uh, their primary uh, theological agenda as they recount true history about Jesus, is to answer this question, who is he? So so if you think of Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke, and we we consider these together because they're very similar, um, this question uh, is the theme that runs throughout. Right At his his birth and, and conception, the angel appears to Mary, and the big question is, who will this child be? He's the Son of the Most High. He's Christ the Lord. At the beginning of his ministry, it is baptism. There's a voice from heaven concerning his identity. This is my Son. At the apex of his ministry, and this is actually the the, um, center point and the big pivot point of both Matthew and Mark, is, is the confession of Peter at Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. A question of his identity. Who is he? Right after that, a big moment, the transfiguration. Uh, Jesus is is gloriously transfigured. And again, a voice from heaven that answers the question, Who is he? This is my son. At his trial, that's that's the big bugaboo, isn't it? Who does this man uh, say that he is? Are you the Christ? Tell us plainly if you are the Christ. In Mark, he says, I am. At his death, at his crucifixion, there's the climactic moment when uh, the Roman centurion says, Surely this man was the Son of God. Who is Jesus? Central to the Gospels. In John, you'll have to turn here. This is, uh, this is wonderful. The, the end of John. John chapter 20, verse 30. John chapter 20, verse 30. And this is where John introduces the purpose statement uh, for his gospel. Why did he write the gospel? And why did he write it in the way that he did? Why did he include certain things and exclude other things? Verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, His identity. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. So note that verse 31 did not read, uh, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus lived a perfect life, died for your sins, and rose from the dead, and that by believing this you may have life in his name. Rather, these are written so that you may believe who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's not to minimize the work of Jesus, life, death, resurrection, ascension, session at God's right hand. Um, but I point this out to, uh, to show you how significant the person of Christ is. And how it is essential for salvation. And how it is, um, it's what charges his work with meaning and significance. And it's what makes his life, death, and resurrection truly good news. God's good news, the power of our salvation. Um, so incredibly significant. Uh, I, I hope in, in this introduction um, I've wet your appetite for how wonderful and important these things are. Uh, the aspect of Christ's person that we'll focus on today, the rest of our time, is his deity. And this aspect uh, by itself carries eternal significance. Jesus himself in John eight twenty four, said that I told you you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am, or I am He, just recalling the divine name from the Old Testament, unless you believe that I am Yahweh, God, you will die in your sins. So He's fully God. Jesus is God the Son incarnate. Um, first place we turn uh, appropriately is the biblical data. And uh, before we start to look at the explicit data where where it's made um, clear and put right out front that Jesus is God, I, I think it's important and interesting to point out that it is implicitly affirmed, we could say assumed everywhere in the New Testament. Um, I, I got this from B.B. Uh, Warfield. And if you'll permit me, I'd like to read an extended quote to you that is, is wonderful. So, uh, just put on your extended quote ears. And again, this is making the point that the deity of Christ is implicitly affirmed everywhere. <clears throat> the very abundance and persuasiveness of the evidence of the deity of Christ greatly increases the difficulty of adequately stating it. This is true even of the scriptural evidence, as precise and definite as much of it is. For it is a true remark of Dr. Dale's that the particular texts in which it is def- definitely asserted are far from the whole, or even the most impressive, proofs which the scriptures apply supply of our Lord's deity. He compares these texts... "...to the salt crystals which appear on the sand of the sea beach after the tide has receded. These are not, he remarks, the strongest, though they may be the most apparent, proofs that the sea is salt. The salt is present in solution in every bucket of seawater. The deity of Christ is in solution in every page of the New Testament. Every word that is spoken of him." Every word which he is reported to have spoken of himself is spoken on the assumption that he is God. And that is the reason why the criticism which uh, addresses itself to eliminate the testimony of the New Testament to the deity of our Lord has set itself a hopeless task. To take the deity of Christ out of the New Testament, the New Testament itself would have to be eliminated. Because... The deity of Christ is the presupposition of every word of it. It is impossible to select words out of the New Testament from which to construct earlier documents in which the deity of Christ shall not be assumed. The assured conviction of the deity of Christ is just as old as Christianity itself. He gives some examples. Uh, Let us observe in an example or two how thoroughly saturated the gospel narrative is with the assumption of the deity of Christ. ...so that it crops out in the most unexpected ways and places. In three passages of Matthew, reporting the words of Jesus... ...he is represented as speaking familiarly and in the most natural manner in the world of his angels. In all three, he designates himself as the Son of Man. And in all three, there are additional suggestions of his majesty... Quote, the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that cause stumbling and those that do iniquity, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. Who is this Son of Man who has angels, by whose instrumentality and the final judgment is executed at his command? The Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his deeds. Who is this son of man surrounded by his angels in whose hands are the issues of life? And he goes on and on. And and you see the point he's making that even those texts uh, which we're about to look at that don't say Jesus is God. It's assumed throughout. Jesus just naturally, casually talking about sending his angels, the deity of of, God, of of Jesus Christ is is presupposed on every page of the New Testament. Um, the The Sermon on the Mount. So people who want to take the New Testament and try to get to get um, discover like the original New Testament, uh, which is the New Testament we have. But but some people want to say no 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 that this uh, this can't be the original New Testament because. Um, the truth that Jesus was, is Jesus being affirmed as God, they say, that, that was a later theological development, and then that was written back into the New Testament, okay? So the Jesus Seminar, if you're familiar with this, scholar liberal scholars met, and uh, <laughs> I don't know why, I was going to say they met in California, but I don't know that that's true. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why, I, I just assumed that, so I'm sorry, Kelly, um, they met somewhere, and uh, not in Texas, but they met somewhere, and and uh, they they voted on which parts of the New New Testament actually uh, were original, and which things Jesus actually said. And these people who um, say that that uh, the fact that Jesus was God didn't that didn't happen until way after the New Testament, hundreds of years. Uh, they really like the ethical teaching of Jesus, right? Because they want to say Jesus is this great moral teacher, this great sage. And so they love the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of the classic, uh, this is what, this is who Jesus is, this, this great teacher of ethics. But if you think about the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he says, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Who can, who can claim to fulfill the entire Old Testament? Um. He, he repeatedly, he said, you have heard it said, quotes a portion of scripture, but I say to you, such and such. He, he appeals to the authority of his own person in, in um, issuing authoritative interpretations of the law of God. And then at the end of the, old te- uh, of the Sermon on the Mount, um, he says people will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, when did we prophesy in your name? People prophesy in the name of, of God, right? Because prophecy is a word from God. When did we prophesy in your name uh, and, and cast out demons and all these, all these other things? And he'll say, uh, depart from me, you, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. So he's the determiner of the eternal destinies of men. And men's eternal destinies are determined by how they relate to him. Everywhere, even in his ethical teaching. There's the affirmation that he is, he is God. Okay. Um, of course, on the other hand, implicitly everywhere, also many, many places in the Bible, explicitly uh, Jesus is shown to be God. So now is the time that you get to use the appendix of your handout. The attached handout, which actually is not attached um, I couldn't figure out how to make the copier staple them automatically, and I, I didn't want to do this 60 times for all of the packets. So, um, biblical support for the deity of Christ. Uh, this was a handout I was given uh, in one of my classes that I took with uh, Dr. Bruce Ware. We'll, we'll move since you have all of the scriptures here. We're going to move through this very quickly, okay? Um, and you can look look up all of these things. And, uh, and, and spend more time on them later. Let them marinate in your, in your mind and worship Jesus who is God as you read through this on your own time. Okay, one, uh, Jesus is God because the Bible teaches uh, he had a pre-incarnate before he was born as a man. Pre-incarnate existed. So before he existed as a man, he existed. He is God. There is never a time when he was not. He has been from eternity past. Point two. The names of God are applied to Christ. Uh, the actual word God is, is used to refer to Christ several times in the New Testament. And they are listed there. Some of these are, are incredible. The end of 1 John. He is the true God. Yes. Um, B the son of God. He's also called the Son of Man. You might might think to yourself, wait, doesn't that refer to his humanity, that Jesus is called the Son of Man? Uh, Actually, no. Quite the opposite, interestingly enough. It's also interesting that this was Jesus' favorite self-designation. I think, yeah, he wrote here, it's used 84 times in the Gospels. All of them are Jesus speaking about himself. Okay? Okay. And we know what he meant by calling himself the Son of Man. Because it is at his trial, he said, uh, he quoted the verse that, that he pulled the title out of. it. It's in Daniel seven thirteen and 14. And, and there's where the Ancient of Days is seated on thrones. And one like a Son of Man appears uh, before the Ancient of Days. And he's given a kingdom and dominion. And uh, his rule will never end. Uh, someone who who implements, who exercises uh, the end times uh, rulership over the kingdom of God that will never end. That this one is God, um, and, and we know that 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 character was interpreted in in uh, ways that indicates deity. Because after Jesus said at his trial, um, "I'm the Son of Man" from Daniel seven, and you're going to see. Uh, the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, and he quotes Daniel seven. You know what the priest does? He rips his robe, and he says, "What further proof do you need? This is blasphemy!" Because in taking that title, he's he's making himself equal with God, divine. This is this is a claim to deity. Um, D the Lord of Glory. Um, E, the first and the last. We'll, we'll look more at this last one at a later point in the handout because that's, that's really fantastic. Okay, also the attributes true of God alone are predicated of Christ. Is eternity, um, immutability, which means uh, he doesn't change. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 1 quotes how um, everything in creation is going to Uh, wear out the skies will be rolled up like a scroll but you speaking of the son jesus you are the same and your years do not end in in distinction from all created reality Uh, he's omnipotent also uh, roman numeral four the works done by god alone are performed by christ so uh, a big one is creation John 1, 3, all things were made through him. Without him, Jesus was not anything made that was made. Uh, Colossians 1, by him all things were created. And this is really significant that the work of creation is attributed to, um, to Jesus. Because only God was there to do the work of creation. In fact, he says as much in Isaiah forty four twenty four. He says, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, alone, who spread out the earth by myself. God says, I created alone. I created by myself. And then the New Testament it says, Jesus created. Jesus is God. Um, preservation. Colossians 1.17, in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Also, he gives eternal life. Only God can do this. He forgives sin. Uh, and this is, this is pointed out in the gospel. Someone says, what's this guy doing? None can forgive sins except God alone. This, make, this makes sense, right? Um, y- the party who is offended is the the one who has the right to grant forgiveness, right? So, um, if, if uh, Karen here offends Kelly, and, uh, and I say, and she just said, I'm sorry, I say, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Don't, don't worry about that. You're forgiven, right? That's inappropriate. I was not the offended party. I have no right to grant the forgiveness. Likewise, because sin is primarily against God, The offended party, God, is the only one who can grant forgiveness. Jesus forgives people of sins. Jesus is the one who has sinned against. Jesus is God. Um, Also, final judgment. This is interesting. In in John 5, uh, he he actually says, and you've heard this because Dan's preached it, that the Father has given judgment to the Son... So that people will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Uh, Roman numeral 5. Worship belonging to God alone is given to and received by Christ. This is incredible. Think about the Old Testament. Um, The first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall worship no other gods. That, that's the ethical plumb line of the ethics of the entire Old Testament. Don't worship anyone other than God. And, and uh, saints and angels in the New Testament reject this worship, right? In Revelation, um, uh, people are, are tempted to worship the angels that appear to them, and the angels say, "No, no, 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 no! Don't do that. I'm just, I'm just a servant of God." And uh, uh, even um, uh, at the end of Acts, Paul and one of his associates, right, that uh, people start uh, to worship him, and, and uh, I mean, they they freak out, say, "Don't, don't do that! Don't do that!" People worship Jesus, and he receives it. He receives it. Is he less pious than Paul? No. Jesus receives worship because worship is due him. Um, here's a quote one commentator says. Worship most obviously puts into religious practice the distinction that, that Jewish monotheism drew between the one God and all other reality." And Jesus actually is worshipped in the New Testament at precisely those moments that he's recognized as divine. Um, God commands, uh, point F, God commands Christ will be worshipped. Worship him, all you angels. Christ one day will be worshipped by all and then Jesus' own explicit claims requiring his deity. Uh, Matthew 26, that's the Daniel 7 verse I referenced. John 8, 58, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. John 17, 5 and 24. I think Dan's going to preach on um, John 17 today. Uh, he talks about how we, Jesus shares in the glory and love of the Father from before the foundation of the world. Jesus himself had explicit claims requiring deity. Okay, spend some more time uh, on that later. We'll put that up, get back to um, the lecture outline. A few other things I want to point out. Okay, so, uh, also... Significant for understanding the New Testament witness to Jesus' deity and how central that is for the Christian religion is, is that the fundamental confession of the New Testament is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Uh, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, Romans ten nine and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 Corinthians twelve three. no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4, 5, Paul says, What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord. And then in Philippians 2, of course, One day every tongue will confess, Jesus is Lord. Now, um, that, that application of the title Lord to Jesus is significant because in the Old Testament, God revealed His, his name, the special covenant name that he wanted his people Israel to call him Remember at the burning bush to Moses what what is your name um, what is, and again names represent one's one's personal identity so so Moses basically says um who are you God by what name shall we refer to you that we may know who you are and he says uh something that's roughly equivalent to I am, or I am that I am. Um, and and later, uh, uh, later, the prophets, it, it comes sometimes in the form of I am he. Uh, but, but faithful Jews were afraid of, of taking the, the name of the Lord in vain. Um, as best as we can understand it, how that Hebrew word I am should be said as Yahweh. Okay? But the Hebrews didn't want to say Yahweh. Lest, lest they be accused of taking his name in vain. So, so they would read a, a different Hebrew word when they got to the word Yahweh. The divine name that God revealed to Moses to be called by. That they didn't call him by. Um, they would read Adonai which just means Lord. So in your Old Testament when it says Lord and O-R-D is lowercase letters. That's just the, the generic word Lord can be referred to, applied to anyone in a position of authority. Okay? Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Okay? Um, but in your Old Testament, when you see Lord in O-R-D, they're in capital letters, but smaller than the L. Uh, that's actually the translation of Yahweh, the divine name. And then uh, when when the Greeks came by and translated the Old Testament, they used the Greek word for Lord to translate the divine name. And the New Testament... Sorry, we're getting kind of technical here. The New Testament um, was written in Greek and the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint was was commonly used in, in that cultural milieu that the New Testament came out of. And so... Uh, the divine name Lord in Greek referred to that special name of God that he revealed. And the authors of the New Testament in saying Jesus is Lord, what they're saying in part is that Jesus is included in this special personal identity of who God is that, that, uh, that he revealed. Um It's okay if you didn't get all of that. (laughs) Uh, Likewise, in John, when Jesus says uh, these I am statements, he's claiming for himself that divine name, Yahweh, I am. Later, authors call him Lord. They're claiming for him the divine name, Yahweh. This is incredible. Um, Next point. Jesus' related point, Jesus shares the identity of the one true and living God revealed in the Old Testament. Now, some may say, uh, aren't there places in the Old Testament that are pretty clear that there is only one God and there is not another? And the answer to that, of course, is yes. Uh, And then so the next question is, then just calling Jesus God and the Father God, uh, violate those verses? as if there is another one and the answer to that is no and here's why because those old testament verses that most clearly and explicitly affirm the oneness of god the uniqueness of god the uh, there is no otherness of god things that say things like besides me there is no god the authors of the new testament don't ignore those verses They actually take them and apply them to Jesus. Jesus is the very God of the Old Testament. The one who made heavens and the earth and saved Israel to be his people. The one who says, I am God and there is no other. Jesus is fully God. Yes, that God. The true and living God. Um, uh, If I asked you, uh, where are those places in the Old Testament that most explicitly Affirm the oneness and uh, the there is no otherness of God. Uh, the first two places that, that you should turn would be Deuteronomy 6 4 and Isaiah 40 through 55. Uh, these are the hallmarks of Jewish monotheism, again applied to Jesus. So, Deuteronomy 6 4, uh, that verse is actually so important that the verse has its own name. It's called the, the Shema. It's a Hebrew word. You can say it. You haven't said anything in 50 minutes. Say Shema. Shema. Okay, the Shema. And it's called that because that's the first Hebrew word in the verse. It's a command, hear. And it's hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And, and faithful Jews actually at the time would recite that verse twice a day. Uh, when they rose up, when they, when they lie down. A, a literal application of part of the rest of that chapter in Deuteronomy 6. So that was, that was in, ingrained in their mind. Foundation. Who is God? The Lord your God. The Lord is one. The Lord your God. The Lord is one. And amazingly, uh, the Apostle Paul, who was commissioned by Jesus to speak with the authority of Jesus about Jesus, takes this a Touchstone statement of the uniqueness of God The Shema And he reconfigures it To include Jesus in it This is amazing Look at 1 Corinthians 8 Again with, this, with the Shema ringing in your ears The Lord your God, the Lord is one The Lord your God, the Lord is one uh, Paul takes every single word Of the Greek translation of the Shema And rearranges it to include Jesus in in the divine identity of of this one God so I'm going to start in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 8 you say hey is theology practical absolutely Jesus uh, Paul says this in the context of whether or not you should eat uh, meat that's been um, has something to do with pagan religious practices theology is very practical All right. 1 Corinthians 8, 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence, quote, and that, quote, there is no God but one. So he affirms what the Old Testament teaches about God. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Verse 5. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, There's many things that, that people call gods and lords in the world, yet for us, and here, here it is, the Christianized Shema, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. So, the Lord your God The Lord is one, there is one God, the Father, one Lord, Jesus Christ. Amazing that that Paul applies uh, this statement of of God's oneness and uniqueness. He says, Jesus is this God, as is God the Father, who is also fully this God. So within the one God, there's there's a distinction of persons, and yet both are fully God, the Father, the Son. You, you see, the, the Bible forces you to believe in the Trinity. You have no other option if you want to be biblical. So, so uh, again, just to make that point uh, more, more clearly, Paul is not adding Jesus, the Lord, to the God that's affirmed in Deuteronomy 6.4. He's not bringing in Jesus as another God Next to the one affirmed in Deuteronomy 6.4. That would be polytheism. And would actually contradict the Shema. Paul is including Jesus. In the identity of the one true God. Who is affirmed in that verse. So both God the Father and the Lord Jesus. Possess in full this unique divine identity. He does a similar thing quickly. The other part of that verse Uh, He divides up the phrase from him and through him and to him are all things. Normally that phrase is taken together to refer to God like it does at the end of of Romans. From him, through him, to him are all things. And he divides that up and says um, for us there is one God, the Father uh, from whom from whom are all things and for whom we exist. So the first and last element. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. So it's kind of like a, a, a double whammy there, both in using the Shema and in using that phrase, from whom, through whom, to whom, or for whom are all things, and, and including Jesus into those statements. Incredible. Okay, Isaiah 40 through 45. This is the other place, and, and uh, a more expansive and poetic and beautiful, majestic Uh, place where over and over there's these exalted statements about God and how how he's distinguished from everything else that isn't God Um, Isaiah 45 Isaiah 45 22 and 23 Isaiah 45 22 and 23 The Lord says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Here's a statement. For I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return to me, to me. That is God, the one about whom it said there is no other, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And then Paul says in Philippians 2, that God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. What is the name that's above every name? We're about to to find out. Jesus gets it here. Uh, So that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow. Here's the refrain from Isaiah. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In Isaiah, I am God, there is no other. Every knee will bow to me, every, every tongue will swear allegiance to me. Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow before Him. Every tongue will confess that. Likewise, Isaiah 44, 6. uh, Thus says the Lord. I'm sorry, I'll give you time if you want to turn there. Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. This is what He says. I am the first... And I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Isaiah 48 says something similar. Uh, We don't need to turn there. But the point is, that title, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. To call yourself the first and the last is to say, essentially, from you are all things, for you are all things, you are eternal, you are behind and above all things, all things that exist, Everything in between, it's not that just the beginning and the end belong to you, but also everything in between. To say something like, I am the first and the last, is is to make a statement saying that you are God. And he adds the note, and there is no other. Uh, In 48.12 he says again, I am the first and I am the last. Then in Revelation, this, this title by which God distinguishes himself from everything else that isn't God, is taken on the lips of both God the Father and Jesus. Um, In Revelation 1, 8, speaking of God the Father, I am the Alpha and the Omega. It's another way to say the first and the last. And then Jesus, in that same chapter in verse 17 of chapter 1, says, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Fast forward to the end of the book of Revelation. Chapter 21. Speaking of God, the Father, he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And then, uh, chapter 22, verse, first, verse 13. Uh, the most e- expansive rendition of this first, last um, <clears throat> title. He says, I am the Alpha and and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So I think think that's incredible and how how strategic of the Holy Spirit uh, to inspire the authors of the New Testament to take the very texts of the Old Testament that say, besides me there is no God and to apply those texts to Jesus. Um, This is the univocal affirmation of the early church there was never a time that the church did not believe this confess this uh i have a list of quotes up here if you're interested in seeing it we don't have time to get into it of of um early church fathers who lived in between when the new testament ended and the council of nicaea which is on your pamphlet in 325 quotes from from uh, Christian teachers and leaders that lived all in between those times, affirming Jesus explicitly as God. And then this, this was formally articulated at the Council of Nicaea. Um, Jesus didn't become God when the church articulated it uh, in, this, in this creed in 325, but, but they just faithfully articulated For the purpose mainly of guarding from error what the scriptures taught and what had always been believed by the church they officially recognized it so to say Um, we believe in one lord jesus christ the son of god begotten of the father only begotten he explains that that is from the substance or essence or nature of the father god from god light from light true god from true god begotten not made of one substance is the same essence or nature with the father he is fully god so in conclusion uh, a few implications um jesus is revealed to be god that's what we focused on but that also means that jesus himself reveals who god is so so we've been thinking everything the Bible says about who God is, we should apply that to our understanding of who Jesus is. But, but that's a, a two-way street of revelation, right? Everything that the Bible says about who Jesus is, that should inform your understanding of who God is. Jesus is God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Um, so, for example, how, how could this make a difference? In Matthew 11, 29 and 30, Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. We say, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's Jesus' character. Do you understand that's, that's Jesus' character because that's the character of God? Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart because there is a sense in which That's part of God's character, to be lowly and gentle in heart. Um, Jesus reveals God. It's easier for us to see how um, the character of Jesus that's shown when Jesus is exalted to the highest place, that reveals God's character. But you know what else? The character of Jesus that's revealed in his lowly service and self-abasement and his crucifixion, What the crucifixion says about Jesus, that is a revelation of God's character. Both Jesus' exaltation and his humiliation reveals God's character. It's incredible. Jesus reveals God. Also, uh, the fact that Jesus is God shows us that that salvation is from God alone. God accomplished salvation um, independent of us. God the Son, God, the Father, sent God the Son, who became a man, lived a life, empowered by God the Spirit, died for our sins, rose from the dead, and went back to God the Father, who sent God the Son. How we are saved has we had no part in that, because Jesus is God, salvation is completely of God, and finally, uh, because Jesus is God, He demands and deserves our complete trust and devotion and obedience so. Uh, Right after the Shema says, The Lord your God, the Lord is one. Next verse. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Um, Jesus himself taught what's the most important commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your everything. And then Jesus received it when Thomas falls at his feet and says, You are my Lord and my God. You love Jesus. Jesus. Because he is God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your might, your strength. Complete and exclusive worship and devotion we owe to God should be directed at Jesus. Jesus is God. Let's pray. God, thank you for these wonderful truths that you have revealed who Jesus is and that Jesus has revealed who you are. Because as he himself taught, He and you, the Father, are one. So we commit to worshiping and loving and devoting ourselves um, chiefly, completely to you. Because you are worthy of it. we look forward to that day when every knee bows before Jesus and every tongue confesses him as Lord to your glory. I pray you'd help us to glorify you. With, with the rest of our time together um, in anticipation of that, that happy day. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior and God. Amen.